ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson, coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, one dead, several firefighters injured and 170,000 homes still blacked out after Victoria's wild weather. Also, it's election day in Indonesia. Who will become the next president of the world's largest Muslim-majority nation? And searching the world's oceans for hidden reefs. Aussie scientists are redrawing the map. It's been really like exciting seeing the process. Mapping of reefs is something that we've been trying to do for centuries. But now just having these critical habitat maps, it's just improving and improving. Thank you for your company. The fallout from yesterday's wild weather event in Victoria is still being assessed, with many tens of thousands of homes still blacked out and the extent of damage from bushfires still unclear. Many residents at Pomonal in Victoria's west haven't yet been allowed back into town to check whether their homes are still standing. Conditions have improved for firefighters battling a pair of blazes sparked during yesterday's catastrophic fire conditions, but they're still not under control, as Angus Randall reports. With bushfires approaching, Kate Kirkpatrick left her 600-acre farm in the foothills of the Grampians yesterday, not knowing what she'd find when she returned. She's managed to get back today to assess the damage. And we can see where all the uh, the tankers have been moving around the paddocks last night, um, saving our property, and we're forever grateful for that. We have um, dams that um, we understand all the helicopters have used for water, and they have had been emptied, and we were quite okay with that to, in order to save our property and livestock. So we are a lot more fortunate than others. Firefighters are battling to get two fires on the eastern side of the Grampians under control. Mark Sleeman lives in the small town of Pomonal. He's still waiting to learn about his home. We know that the CFA uh, and fire, firefighters are on site still putting out fires, in Pomonal particularly, where, uh, where, where that's home. And we're just really now waiting, waiting to hear some news. I, we're starting to hear some news come out of Pomona where, where businesses and homes have been lost and, and substantial numbers. So we're just sort of holding our breath. We're um, hoping for, for the best, but um, expecting the worst, unfortunately. Fire is one force of nature hurting Victoria. The other is wind. More than half a million homes lost power yesterday and thousands of people are still waiting for their electricity to be restored. Storms knocked out six major transmission mission lines, risking a domino effect through the energy grid along the eastern seaboard. Professor Michael Breer is the director of the Melbourne Energy Institute at the University of Melbourne. The transmission wires carry literally thousands of megawatts of electrical power. So if one of these fails during a storm, the whole system has to very quickly reconfigure itself to maintain the system operating. And that often requires some generators to immediately be tripped off, we call it. It's the biggest blackout since South Australia went dark during storms in 2016. Michael Breer says the lessons learned from that event were vital in keeping most of Victoria online. It's very early days, of course, given yesterday's event, but the fact that we maintained a secure power system while an extremely intense storm came to the southeast of Australia and cause very extensive damage without there being a loss of system security is arguably evidence of a lot of that learning. 
being put into practice. In the aftermath of the 2016 blackout, there were questions over whether SA's reliance on renewable energy contributed to the scale of the disaster. Since then, South Australia's use of renewable energy has only increased. Associate Professor Roger Dargaville is an energy systems expert with Monash University. He says renewables can make the network more resilient. Having a more distributed network with more generators over larger geographic areas does uh, actually create some vulnerability because you've got more power lines, but also more resilience. You can lose some of the power lines and you still have enough generators connected to keep the system live. If you took an extreme case where you had all the generation in one spot, if you lost the transmission network to that spot, you'd be obviously in, in a lot of trouble. By distributing the network, which is what you naturally do with a renewable energy system, you actually create more resilience to this kind of event. But ultimately, it's impossible to prepare for all disaster events. At the end of the day, you can build a very res- resilient system, but it costs more. So it's a balance between keeping energy prices as low as we can, as well as keeping the system as resilient as possible. And that's a delicate balance. The Australian energy market operator says it could be weeks before power is restored to some customers. Angus Randall and Elizabeth Cramsey reporting there. Well, there's been a lot of talk lately about the need for big, bold policy ideas to improve the tax system and bring down inflation. Well, today we got one, big and certainly bold. Two eminent economists say they can tackle inflation, raise billions of dollars a year and bring down global carbon emissions by at least 6%, all while supercharging a new green export industry for Australia and delivering cheaper power bills. At the centre of the plan is a proposal to impose a new tax on the fossil fuel industry. And the government has already ruled it out. Here's David Taylor. The goal is extraordinarily ambitious, to build Australia into the zero-carbon superpower of the world economy. Ross Garno reckons it's possible. Australia's advantages in the emerging zero-carbon world economy are so large that they define the most credible path to restoration of growth. Ross Garno and Rod Sims have spent the past six months working on what they're calling a pathway to prosperity for Australia in a net-zero world. Australia emerges as by far the world's largest producer of iron, metal and steel, more than twice as large as any other country. Making good use of our zero-carbon opportunity makes it possible for North East Asia and Europe, over two-fifths of the world's emissions, to get to net zero. To be clear, the economic duo's plan is not about lowering Australian carbon emissions. Rather, it's about offering up clean Australian resources to the world in an effort to lower global emissions. The vision is for Australia to become a major manufacturer and exporter of metals and fuels made with renewable energy power, like large-scale solar and wind farms, as Rod Sims explains. What happens now is we export iron ore, we export metallurgical coal and we export gas, and so people use our resources and make iron metal overseas. And that's economic, that's sensible now. When you want to make green iron metal, that is iron without using fossil fuels, 
The way to do it is to use renewable energy. But the new green industry will need financial help getting off the ground with cold, hard cash. So under their plan, a carbon solutions levy would be imposed on all 105 major coal and gas projects around the country, as well as fossil fuel imports of oil and diesel. Put simply, the fossil fuel industry pays for it. The Minerals Council, which represents fossil fuel companies, says no to that, saying in a statement, today's proposal from the Superpower Institute to impose an additional tax on Australian industry would seriously undermine our international competitiveness and result in job losses across the country. And the Australian Industry Group, which represents employers across the country, says it's too risky a plan. Its CEO is Innes Willocks. We're remembering, of course, that we have relied very heavily on um, commodities such as coal uh, for a very long time to prop up our budget. Um, There's obviously the danger here that we might be inflicting some damage upon ourselves on the way through. Mariana O'Gorman is a director at progressive think tank, the McKell Institute. She says the plan is doable, but it needs to be funded and the bill is enormous. And what they're talking about today is that transition will cost a fair bit of upfront capital. It will be good for the economy in the long term, but we need to make an investment in it if we want to shift. It's entirely unsurprising that the Minerals Council, which represents the fossil fuels industry, is saying no to this. Is there a way around that, though? Uh, It then becomes a matter for Australians and uh, the politicians that represent us to talk about whether we we really want to listen to the economists and the scientists on this. Well, the Treasurer Jim Chalmers made his position on a carbon levy pretty clear at question time today in Parliament. We are not up for the levy uh, that the uh, Professor Sims and Professor Garno uh, proposed at the press club today. Still, half the brains behind the idea remains unperturbed. We anticipated that. All good ideas in economic policy take a long time to filter through. So this is just the beginning of the debate, not the end of it. That's likely welcome news for millions of Australians struggling to make ends meet, given the proceeds of their proposed carbon levy would go towards lowering household power bills. David Taylor there. Network 10 journalist Lisa Wilkinson has had a big legal win over her employer, with a federal court ruling 10 must pay her legal costs in the Lehrman defamation case. Mr Lehrman sued both Ms Wilkinson and the network after the Project TV program broadcast an interview with his former colleague Brittany Higgins, alleging she'd been raped in Parliament House in 2019. Now, Mr Lehrman strenuously denies that allegation and no findings have ever been made against him. The federal court today accepted Ms Wilkinson's argument. It was reasonable for her to retain her own team of lawyers. Samantha Donovan has been following the case. Sam, why did Lisa Wilkinson win her case against him? Well, it really came down to that word you mentioned, David, reasonable. Was it reasonable she had her own lawyers? And shortly before Justice Michael Lee delivered his judgment this afternoon, Network 10's barrister told the court that 10 was no longer arguing that it was unreasonable that she retained her own team of lawyers for the Lehman uh, defamation case, but it was still going to dispute how much of those legal costs it should cover. Lisa Wilkinson's barrister, Michael Elliott, 
HSC described that change on the argument as uh, on the reasonableness point to be not only a capitulation but an embarrassment for Network 10. So Justice Lee ruled that 10 will pay Ms Wilkinson's legal costs for the defamation case and that'll be worked out once he's handed down his judgment in that case, either next month or in early April. And he said Mr Lehrman's case could be decided in three different ways. First, Bruce Lehman wins, and so he'll be seeking costs from both Channel 10 and Lisa Wilkinson. The second scenario is it's a mixed result, and Mr Lehman succeeds against only one of Network 10 or Lisa Wilkinson. And the third case scenario, Bruce Lehman loses the case, and then he's liable for the costs of both 10 and Lisa Wilkinson. So just how much of Ms Wilkinson's legal bill 10 has to cover will be decided, as I said, after the judgment. Justice Lee did order today, though, that Channel 10 uh, pay most of Lisa Wilkinson's costs in this separate claim. But for the main case, as I said, we'll have to wait and see. So what is that payday? How much are those costs likely to be? Well, the New South Wales Supreme Court heard last year that Lisa Wilkinson's legal bills as of September were more than $700,000. Mm. That was before the trial itself began. So I think it's fair to say they'll be well over a million dollars by now. Yeah, and we saw this evidence this week about Lisa Wilkinson's uh, checkered, you could say, uh, relationship with Network 10. Uh, is she going to keep working for Channel 10? Well, that, that seems unclear at this stage, David. It was apparent from the evidence, as you say, that the relationship between the two has been badly damaged. And this, the court heard, largely happened after Lisa Wilkinson gave a speech at the 2022 Logie Awards after the project won an award for its interview with Brittany Higgins. That speech, of course, led to the postponement of Mr Lehrman's criminal trial because of fears it might influence jurors. And Lisa Wilkinson told the court she really felt abandoned by Network 10, that her employer had left her to shoulder the blame for the derailing of the criminal trial. She said that her reputation was trashed in the media and she was particularly upset that 10 didn't come out publicly to say that speech had been legaled by their lawyers and approved by senior executives. And also she was upset that they hadn't corrected reporting that she'd been warned by the prosecutor in the criminal case uh, not to give the speech, and that just wasn't the case. Uh, Lisa Wilkinson told the court that five months after the Logie's speech, Network 10 told her she was being removed from the project and her employment contract being changed and that 10 had told her agent there'd just been too much brand damage and it was best she would be removed from hosting on the project. She gave evidence she was shocked, embarrassed and, and deeply disappointed by that decision uh, and said it showed that 10 had no real interest in correcting the damage done to her and her reputation by that Logie speech. She also told the court that while her contract had been changed and uh, flagged that she'd do an interview series last year and this year, there's no sign of that happening. So, David, we'll just have to wait and see what happens now for Lisa Wilkinson at Network 10. Samantha Donovan there. This is PM with me, David Lipson. Don't forget you can hear all of our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. 
It's the world's biggest single-day election, and today it's unfolding on our doorstep. More than 200 million Indonesians have cast their ballots in the nation's presidential election. The outgoing president, Joko Widodo, has hit his two-term limit and has endorsed his former bitter rival, Prabowo Subianto, a former general with a dark human rights record who's now the clear favourite to win. So how are the results shaping up? Emeritus Professor Greg Feely is a scholar of Indonesian politics and history. Greg, the polls are closed. Are we getting any indication on which way the results are going? Uh, we haven't as yet, David. Uh, there'll be a slight delay. So the polls close at one and there'll be voters, as long as they're inside the polling station by one o'clock, well, then they have time to vote. So that leads to a delay. There'll be the, the tally taking place in the various polling stations and then the figures get fed up. So uh, up the chain. And so it will probably take us a few hours before we start getting reliable um, exit polling figures from the major media organisations or survey organisations. So we are expecting Prabowo Subianto to ultimately become the president of Indonesia. Whether that takes one round, whether that happens today or whether it goes to a, a runoff is, is still an open question. If it goes to a runoff, a second round vote, what will that contest likely look like? <laughs> That will be uh, probably a much more interesting campaign than has been the case with this first round presidential election campaign because it's very likely that uh, Prabowo's rival would be Anis Baswedan, the former governor of Jakarta, and he has shown in this campaign and in previous campaigns that he is a very effective retail politician, very articulate, very good at crafting um, attacks uh, and asking difficult questions of his opponents. In this case, Prabowo is a very proud man and he doesn't like to have his achievements and his record questioned. And Anis Baswedan was able to really draw quite angry responses to produce the kind of less attractive side of Prabowo during the election, um, during this first round of the election campaign. That will probably intensify considerably in the second round and there would be much more questioning, I think, of some of uh, President Jokowi's policies and his interventions in the political system. Mm. So this carries a, a significant, not so much a threat of loss to Prabowo because he's far ahead of um, the other candidates, but rather it could cause a lot more critical public discussion about what Jokowi's record is and what Prabowo's record is. And I think that's why both Prabowo and Jokowi are desperate to try to secure this one-round victory today. Yeah, you mentioned the, the intervention by Joko Widodo, Jokowi, the president, uh, because Prabowo Subianto is a man who was, you know, drummed out of the military over allegations of human rights abuses. He lost two elections on a sort of nationalist strongman platform, now somehow running as a soft and cuddly grandfather figure. How much of that extraordinary transformation in, in his brand and his public support is thanks to President Joko Widodo's endorsement? 
So I think the change in Prabowo's strategy is something that he himself and his inner circle have have designed, have um, brought into being, because he realised, Prabowo realised that at 72 years of age, he was not going to have too many more election campaigns that he could contest. In many ways, you would probably say his best political years are behind him. Uh, so he really had to win on this occasion, and one of the things that he seems to have concluded is that the old Prabowo persona of being the very authoritarian, rousing, hardline sort of figure, that was not going to get him over the line. He had to appeal to a bigger section of the electorate, and to do that he had to soften his image. And he's done that very successfully, and he's appeared to be a much more mellow and measured uh, political leader over the last four years. The question everyone is asking is whether that continues um, once he becomes president or whether he reverts to uh, uh, an uglier kind of crash or thrash, crash through kind of politician. There is a long wait, whatever happens today or in the second round, before the winning candidate gets into the presidential palace. And assuming that is Prabowo Subianto, uh, what is that going to mean for the, the president, the, the kind of lame duck president, if you like, Joko Widodo, who is in charge until the 20th of October? Well, that will be uh, uh, really an unprecedented situation in Indonesian politics because one of the uh, extraordinary things about Jokowi's second term, uh, which he's coming to the end of now, is that he has successfully avoided becoming a lame duck president. His predecessor, Cecilia Bambang Yudhoyono, very much was a diminished figure in by the end of his second term. But Jogowi, sorry, has been very successful at concentrating power in his own hands. And he is by far the dominant figure in Indonesian politics. And he has the ability to bend parties and key institutions of state to his will. So He's leaving office in a powerful position. He has an approval rate so not of so somewhere around after about eighty percent. <laughs> no, that's right. Um, but this could be one of the interesting dynamics. Once Prabowo is um, the president designate, uh, well, then what happens to Jokowi's authority and the effectiveness of these final eight months of his presidency? Mm. If you believe what Prabowo has been saying, he will loyally serve Jokowi until the end of that term and he will continue with Jokowi's policies. So if that's the case, perhaps not a dramatic change. But it's also possible that Prabowo doesn't want Jokowi trying to call some or all of the shots and then he pushes back and then we have a perhaps a much more tense dynamic between the two. My feeling is that Prabowo will bide his time on this and he won't seek to create any problems with Jokowi, but it is an unusual situation to have a president-in-waiting uh, who is currently within the Cabinet who will have this eight-month period mm. um, before they actually are installed in the position. Fascinating stuff. Uh, Greg Feely, thank you. That's Emeritus well, Professor and uh, Scholar of Indonesian Politics and History at the Australian National University. Greg Feely there. Well, we've long known that physical exercise can play a big role in making us feel happier and to some extent help ease depression and anxiety. Now there are calls for doctors to more actively prescribe exercise rather than just recommend it. It mightn't sound like much of a distant difference, but advocates say it might help some patients on their path to recovery. Alison Shaw takes a look. 
Ready? Let's go. Three years ago, Nicola Sowry tried something out of her comfort zone. Finding footy, and particularly this club, like genuinely changed my life. And it shouldn't be that mind-blowing, but it is. Yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark! While the 29-year-old has never been diagnosed, she credits joining the local football team with transforming her mental health. I'm just such a happier, healthy version of myself by being here. Her experience is backed by research. Studies show that physical activity can be used on its own as a treatment for mild to moderate depression or anxiety. But we know that there are physiological changes that occur within the brain. So we know that we, even just going out for a short bout of exercise, immediately after, we do have an improvement in mood. So we know that long term, it can help improve our mental health. Dr Ben Singh is an expert on physical activity and health at the University of South Australia. On average, we found that it was about 1.5 times more effective than medications. And we're at a stage where we probably don't need any more evidence on how beneficial exercise is. It's about now maybe more shifting the research focus into how can we integrate exercise into standard care. General practitioner Caroline Johnson helps train junior doctors and admits exercise and mental health isn't a huge part of the general practice curriculum. Most GPs know that exercise is good for depression. It's more about how do you deliver that message to the person in a way that will actually help them engage with it. Some researchers are calling for GPs to actually prescribe exercise rather than just recommending it, including the type, the dose and the frequency. But others, like Dr Alison Crozier from the University of South Australia, believe referrals to exercise physiologists are more beneficial. GPs don't get that much formal training around um, prescribing exercise, but if they could refer to an appropriate person, that would be ideal. But she acknowledges it's not as simple a solution as it may sound. With individuals who are experiencing issues with their mental health, whether they're clinically depressed or not, you know, often you can get into the cycle where you're feeling un you know, unmotivated to do anything. It's hard to get out of bed. So the thought of even getting up and trying to be active can be really, really hard. But ultimately, if you can break that cycle and somehow fit some physical activity, even if it's five minutes just to start, you can break that cycle and it can improve your well-being. Sometimes when we talk about some of the potential solutions to improving mental health, it ends up being somewhat obvious solutions, you know, eating well, exercising, sleeping well. But what are the things that stop us from being able to do those things which may seem obvious to others? You know, engaging in a healthy lifestyle is hard. It it takes a lot of work and effort. So often our brains are wired to do things that are quick and efficient and fast. And so engaging in a healthy lifestyle can be difficult. It's not unheard of. You know, the more you do little things towards a healthier lifestyle, the more likely you are to do other healthier behaviors as well. So it's kind of one step at a time and and eventually you might get there. Clinical psychologist Paul Rhodes says exercise is just one part of a complex solution. I'm a great fan of uh, what's known in the literature of, uh, as social prescribing. And social prescribing, it means that, you know, rather than always prescribing therapy, you, you can prescribe engagement in meaningful and valued activities in general, especially ones that 
involves social interaction. Motivation to do sports part of it, but it's just a small chunk. You know, it's very hard to separate that from the bigger picture. I mean, I think more it's more about um, helping someone believe in their own recovery, believe in their own ability to, uh, to overcome uh, uh, mental distress that they've experienced their whole life. That's clinical psychologist Paul Rhodes ending that report by Alison Shaw. A team of Australian marine scientists has discovered there are more coral reefs on our planet's watery surface than previously thought. They've used satellite technology and machine learning to come up with an atlas of the world's coral reefs. And while the fight to save it from the effects of climate change continues, researchers say the new data will help guide that work and give reef conservation efforts a better chance. Rachel Mealy reports. Satellites are a long way from the surface of the ocean, but pictures taken from them have helped form a better understanding of our ocean's ecosystems. We actually used over 100 trillion pixels for this project. And so what we do is we gather information about where we know things are on the surface, so what type of reef it is. We feed that along with the satellite pictures into a machine learning algorithm, and then that spits out um, information about uh, where we think the coral is on a broader scale. Dr Mitchell Lyons is from the University of Queensland School of the Environment. He says the mapping project has given a much more accurate picture of coral reefs across the globe. In, in the past, we thought there was like kind of somewhere between, say, 200,000 square kilometres to 400,000 square kilometres of like kind of reef area. And what we found was that is about 350,000 square kilometres. The maps are publicly accessible and the researchers believe they can be a powerful tool for future reef management around the world. In Australia, we kind of had a reasonable idea of where a lot of our reefs might have been. But for, for, for some jurisdictions, like um, across the, the Pacific, or the Southwest Pacific or Indonesia, um, the Philippines, there weren't very good consistent maps of where coral reefs were. The, I guess the advantage of having these consistent maps all over the globe is that we can start to report and account and, I guess, conserve and, and manage in a consistent way. It's a field of science that's been waiting a long time for a breakthrough in mapping technology. Dr Emma Kennedy is a research scientist at the Australian Institute of Marine Science in Townsville. It's been really like exciting seeing the process. Mapping is something of reefs, is something that we've been trying to do for centuries now. I think Darwin tried to do the first ever global coral reef um, map where he got all the all the information from different scientists and tried to map all the reefs. And then later with the advent of satellite technology and better computing, we started to build these outlines. But now just having these critical habitat maps, it's just improving and improving our understanding of reefs, our valuing of them, conservation planning and and other things for these really critical ecosystems. The Coral Reef Mapping Project is called the Allen Coral Atlas online and it's also available on Google Earth Engine. Rachel Mealy then. That's PM for today. I'm David Lipson. Good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. For a while, Israel declared the Gaza city of Rafah a safe zone. More than a million people flocked there. But it's now under attack. Today, reporter Nicole Johnston on the growing international calls for Israel to pull back and what she saw during a rare trip inside Gaza. 
Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.